Hi, Jim. Hi, Maeve. Good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you. Yeah. Um, how, how's your dad doing post-vaccination? Totally fine. And in good news, my mom got hers today. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So they're on to 63-year-olds in Ireland. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. This is Social Distance, the Atlantic's podcast about the pandemic. Uh, I'm Jim Hamblin. I'm a doctor and staff writer at The Atlantic. Yeah. And I'm Maeve Higgins. And I'm a writer and a comedian. And you are now part of a partially vaccinated household. So uh, congratulations. Yes. Thank you. So my parents have been lording it over us and mm. they've been vaccinated. Meanwhile, in my niece and nephew's school, they had a COVID scare. So they all had to get tested. And um, I was remembering what you said, Jim, you know, about like pediatricians and like kids, nurses being the nicest and like, yeah, because that's why they do it, because they're so nice. And when my niece was getting her test done, she was she's only eight and she was really worried. She's like a worrier. And um, it was like the back of the nose test. But the guy said to her, um, OK, Avine, here I go hunting for snots. <laughs> and she started laughing and like it made the whole thing really fun and she had like a little story to tell her school friends you know and I was yeah. like that is the coolest thing yeah did he get any snots it's <laughs> not on there but like <laughs> also as a comedian I was like okay it's easy to make an eight-year-old laugh you know like <laughs> I was a little bit jealous oh okay <laughs> but don't you just love Jim that there's like still people doing COVID tests after more than a year and they're still like just doing that day after day with like dozens and dozens of people just looking up their noses and they're still taking the time to like make them laugh or make them feel okay about it. Yeah. I mean, that is such a, a huge part of the job of pediatricians. Mm-hmm. I'd absolutely be one if I could go back. But yeah, if you could go back and change your personality. <laughs> yeah. If I could go back and be like c- compassionate. Uh, humorous person who enjoyed making people smile uh, especially children (laughs) that's definitely what I would do no listen you are right where you're (laughs) supposed to be and I was you know looking at your social media I was reading this New York Times article saying that this is very frustrating experts now believe the US likely won't reach herd immunity Mm. can you talk to me about this oh man there are a few terms in this pandemic that have been more misused and misunderstood than herd immunity, I think. Sometimes <laughs> purposefully, sometimes not. Um, the point of that article, as best I could glean, is that the herd immunity isn't some threshold that is absolute any more than something like, I don't know, like Maeve, when did you become an adult? I mean, legal definitions aside, but, you know, was it like one day where you're just like, I've oh. entered adulthood now? Well, I made up my own definition, which oh, was no. when I understood that my parents didn't <laughs> know everything. <laughs> yeah. But does that fit into your analogy? Y- yeah, I think it does in that herd immunity is not going to arrive like upon the planet on a certain day or even upon the country. It's a gradual effect that takes hold. And it'll be Mm -hmm. wonderful to get to a a place where we have almost no virus, but we will still have cases. 
herd immunity, so the textbook definition is when you have enough immunity in a population because of vaccination campaigns that the virus just can't spread widely. You know, it will hit a wall. Statistically, there's just not going to be susceptible people. It's a combination, Mm -hmm. though, of also how we're living. So when you see cases drop precipitously, like they have in, say, a lot of parts of the U.S., even though we don't have 70 or 80 percent of the population vaccinated, we have places where there's almost no transmission because, uh, you know, people are still distancing and not gathering and being careful about not coughing in each other's faces and still wearing masks when they need to be indoors near people. But if you threw all that out the yeah. window, you would presumably see cases rise again. So anyway, herd immunity is a malleable thing. There's not one day where you wake up and, and we have it and we will have to think of it as this balancing act between the more people get vaccinated, the more we can live you know, without everything about any restrictions or any precautions at all. And the fewer people yeah. that do the more our definition of herd immunity is one where we don't have big maskless indoor gatherings with strangers. And if we did, we'd have an outbreak. Right, right. That's good. Because I was reading that and the line like the goal won't be attained. That adds another like why bother to the list of reasons that like skeptics might use to avoid being inoculated. So obviously hate that. Yeah, it's a tough thing to communicate because Mm -hmm. there's no technical reason why we shouldn't be able to get 100% of people vaccinated in, but it just seems we won't. So that, that, that those, the voices of realists being like, we need to be honest about how far we're probably going to get. We're going to get to a point where there's still going to be pockets where we have high enough levels of people who don't get vaccinated that Mm -hmm. we'll have these, um, we'll have spread and the virus will mutate and it's not going to be this magical thing but we can do much much better and we should think of it more as a continuum Mm -hmm. and less as a finish line got us got us just like us being (laughs) grown-ups you can be a grown-up but then also sometimes you still laugh at boogers and doesn't mean you're right reverting to childhood it's just that some things never leave you (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Jim, I'm really glad that we're here today because we've been planning this show for a while now. Regular listeners will know that today we're going to answer your long COVID questions. Um, Before Congress last week, the NIH Director Francis Collins estimated that as many as 3 million people could be left with chronic health problems, even after mild COVID infections. And coming from Dr. Collins, yeah, that number is pretty staggering. And it has been tough to say much about long COVID because we haven't known, you know, what the course of it will be like because the disease hasn't been around Mm -hmm. for that long. But it's been more than a year now. So we've we've been wanting to check in and and see how people are doing. You know, are the symptoms getting better or or worse or, uh, you, you know, is this something that is with you for months, years, a lifetime? I don't know. I would like to know more. So we're going to answer long COVID questions with an expert in a minute, but we wanted to bring someone back first who's battled long COVID symptoms herself, our friend FT Cola, originally just a friend of Catherine, now a friend of me. Uh, Maeve, you didn't get to speak with her before, but she's been on the show twice, joined 
in the early pandemic after she developed COVID-19 and spent two weeks in the hospital. That was over a year ago, and she's been dealing with ongoing symptoms since then. So should we give her a call? Yes. Let's call FT. See how she's doing. Great. Hello? Hi, FT. Hi. Hi, FT. It's Maeve. Nice to meet you. Hi, Maeve. It's so nice to meet you. (laughs) It is great to hear your voice. It's been quite Mm -hmm. a while since you've been on the show, but you you were on twice before sharing your experience. And I'm really curious how you're doing. Yeah, it feels like a lot has happened since we last spoke. Um, The first time we spoke, I was fresh out of hospital. Yeah. It was very early in the pandemic when you got COVID-19. Was it March of 2020? Yes, it was really early on. Um, I assumed that I picked it up the last week of February 2020. And the first week that I was in hospital was the week where on the outside world, I could tell everything was changing very quickly. Mm. And then I spent a long period of time in the sort of immediate coming home, which I am still shocked that I I was able to come home um, because I had gone to the ICU for three days within those two weeks. I'm so extraordinarily lucky to come home. Then I started the period of kind of post-COVID medical care, sort of dealing with the pneumonia, which I had for a very long time, things that felt like they may be cardiac related, post-viral fatigue, you know, my, my hormones all out of the, all over the place, anemia, um, and even just getting my strength back. It was a long time before I could, you know, go on a short walk without it being a a lot of physical effort and feeling like I had run a marathon. And those symptoms shifted and changed. Some things took precedence. uh, Some things kind of faded away. By the time it came to get vaccinated, um, the thing that I was dealing with the most was post-viral fatigue or what I think is post-viral fatigue. Nobody ever actually diagnosed it as such, but I was losing, you know, two days a week to just not being able to get out of bed. And the summer had been characterized by uh, me going to the ER once because of very bad chest pain. That's so scary. <laughs> yeah. A huge amount of echocardiograms and stress echocardiograms um, and EKGs and and I, and I was really lucky to, that every time I would say to my doctors, you know, something weird is happening, they would immediately check it out. So just to briefly recap, FT, it's been more than a year since you were discharged after two weeks in the hospital, including some days in the ICU with a, a serious case of, of COVID-19. And you're still today having some symptoms that have been persistent or waxing and waning since that time. Is that right? Well, that was the case up until getting vaccinated. And then post-vaccination, and I had a gigantic reaction to both shots. Um, Some of those things have melted away. I don't want to jinx it by saying they're completely gone because that feels weird. But um, the fatigue has very largely gone. Um, I'm able to have a lot more energy. Um, I'm able, like living in San Francisco, I've been able to drag myself up hills, which I wouldn't even contemplate before. Uh, And, but some things haven't gone away. And I'm curious about whether those things are more permanent. 
Something I've actually been working on is I still have hyposmia. I'm doing smell training at the moment, which is a really interesting experience. And I'm hoping we'll, we'll help with that. And then certain things haven't gone away. So uh, my hormones kind of never um, went back to how they were prior to COVID. Uh, and so I'm curious about those things. I am not an expert in long COVID. A few people are. But uh, I think it would be helpful to talk to someone who knows much more about this sure. than I do. Is that, o- is that okay? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so... We are going to call uh, Akiko Iwasaki. She's an immunologist and professor at the Yale School of Medicine, where she's run her own lab for 20 years. Okay. I'm very excited. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Professor Iwasaki. This is Jim. Hi, Jim. Hi, Professor. It's Maeve. I'm the other host. Thank you so much for joining us. We have so many questions for you. <laughs> you do. Wonderful. And we also have our friend uh, F.T. Cola uh, on the line with us. She has been experiencing long COVID symptoms and can help bring some first-person perspective to this. Uh, But before we dive in, could you just uh, say your name and title and just a a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, My name is Akiko Iwasaki. I'm a professor of immunobiology at Yale University School of Medicine, and I've always been interested in viral immune responses. And, um, you know, since the COVID-19 pandemic started, we've been really focusing on trying to understand immune responses against this virus. Thank you. So this term long COVID or, or long haulers, it's often used, and I think it might be helpful to our listeners if you could define it, is there a working definition or way that you describe it? Because as I understand it, it can encapsulate many different things. Right. So there lies the problem already that there isn't like a universal definition of long COVID, but I think the medical community is coming to some consensus that it's basically a post-acute viral syndrome that happens after a person has experienced infection with SARS-CoV-2 and has had symptoms for over two months. Uh, Some people Mm -hmm. say three months. (laughs) You know, that definition isn't, um, again, universal. But yeah, people who have extended period of symptoms are kind of bunched together as long COVID. And does the severity or nature of the longer term symptoms, how does that play in? As I understand it, there's a spectrum. Some people might have occasional mild headaches or bouts of fatigue. And for other people, it might be much more extreme. Is it the working definition such that people who are having kind of any symptom of any severity for two or three months after COVID-19? Or is there a threshold where does it have to be symptoms of a certain nature? Yeah, well, again, you know, there isn't a universal definition, but for most people to be considered to have long COVID, you need to have um, prolonged symptoms of um, certain um, severity. For instance, many of the long haulers have fatigue, like extreme Mm -hmm. fatigue. 
Um, or oh, that's what FT, brain... that you mentioned that you had fatigue, right, FT? Yeah, I. it's really interesting hearing Professor Iwasaki, hi, Professor Iwasaki, talking hi. about this because one of my anxieties this whole time has been that, you know, I feel relatively okay um, and I know that there are people out there with very distressing and extreme symptoms and do I qualify as long COVID if I'm, you know, basically up and around, but the fatigue was, um, which weirdly I think emerged, you know, kind of later in 2020 was like, I would ration my week. I would know I have two or three days to get things done. And then I have two or three days. I just have to black out because on the calendar, because I won't get anything done and I'll probably just be in bed that whole time. That fatigue was surprising to me. And it was the type of fatigue I'd never experienced before. And I think that it's something I thought about a lot, that if I had had to go to a place of work or if I had had to do, um, if most of my work was physical, I would not have been able to do that for over a year post-COVID. Um, and so the, the, and that was mostly due to the fatigue, just ruling that out entirely. Right, exactly. So that is one of the most common symptoms that hmm. people with long COVID have is this very severe fatigue. Others report, you know, the, the brain fog, inability to think clearly, remember things and, you know, other cognitive issues. Wow. And what about the sense of smell and taste? Is that a common long COVID symptom too? Right. So that is also extremely common in people who had COVID. Some people only have loss of taste or smell as the symptom, but hmm. others have, in addition to that, you know, uh, more s- serious symptoms. How about vaccination helping people who have long COVID? And I think FT, you experienced some alleviation after you got vaccinated. Is that right? Yes, definitely. So, so the long COVID kind of went in stages and um, I like the phrase Jim used, things kind of waxed and waned over that time. He's a poet. He's a doctor and he's a poet too. He's had <laughs> um, his symptoms waxing and waning. It's a very pretty way of <laughs> saying. If he's, if he's talking about the moon, he's inherently a poet using moon references. Um, yeah. I, you know, something surprising to me was how much certain things melted away uh, post-vaccine. I, I have my fingers crossed as I'm saying this. The fatigue was one of those things. It's like I got an energy boost or something, you know, like when you're a king, you play a computer game, you like pick up like um, an energy pack. Uh, <laughs> and that has gone away as well as things like uh, particular kinds of chest pain, very bad headaches. I'm curious about if Professor Iwasaki knows about why some things might have seemingly gone away and some things are yet to resolve. So, for example, hyposmia, um, hormonal changes. Is there any even theory as to what is the difference between these these categories of things? Yeah, that's um, exactly why we are starting a study, you know, to mm-hmm. investigate what might be underlying the symptom improvement in some long COVID uh, people after the vaccination. As you say, FD, that there are people reporting symptom improvement in different things after vaccine. And we don't even have a handle on what are the common things that people experience, you know, that um, improvement after vaccination. But I do hear people saying, 
yeah, like, uh, you know, they have energy again. They, they're not as fatigued anymore. They can breathe better. The shortness of breath has gone away. You know, they can walk again. You know, with shortness of breath, people tend to not be able to even walk across the room. And, and now they can. So there are a lot of uh, different symptoms that are apparently being lifted by the vaccine. How how do vaccines help it? Like, that is so mysterious to me. Like, what is the mechanism that, like, a vaccine would help with the symptoms of, of long COVID? Why is that? Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive. To, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in order to explain that, I think we need to introduce a couple of theories about long COVID. Mm-hmm. So the long COVID can be mediated by a persistent virus infection, that is, you know, stimulating inflammation in a person for an extended time period. So would you still test positive for COVID if if that's what it is? Well, that's the tricky thing is that such a reservoir of virus is not likely to be in your nose. So the oh. nasopharyngeal swab that people use to test for COVID um, is, is vastly negative in the long COVID patients. Right, right, right. So if, if that reservoir were to exist, it, it must be deeper in the tissue somewhere. So hmm. that could be hiding and that's what's making you still really sick. And then is there another theory as well that you were going to say? Yes. Um, the second theory is that long COVID is um, created by autoreactive cells or autoimmune cells uh, and antibodies. And if that were the case, then the vaccine may provide some temporary relief, but may not be a cure for long COVID because an autoreactive cells are really difficult to get rid of. Is this something that you would anticipate might take years to go away, but should eventually or, or might be with people indefinitely? Yeah, it's hard to say how long the long COVID will last based on experience with other post-viral long-term symptoms. Uh, in some people, this could last for a very long time. People with other viral syndromes, you know, after acute infection have been suffering for years or decades. So hmm. hopefully that's not the case with long COVID, that, that it's a more transient thing, but we just don't know yet. Yeah. And also a lot of the long COVID people didn't have the diagnosis because Back in early spring of last year, when COVID was um, spreading, there was not enough tests so that pe- people mm-hmm. you know, could take the PCR test. And, and so there are lots of people who are suffering from very similar symptoms as the long COVID without the actual diagnosis of COVID. That's leaving a lot of those people being left out of studies. And um, oh, Right. Yeah. So if you maybe never got diagnosed with COVID-19, but around that time started developing fatigue, insomnia, headaches, um, that it can be difficult to know. Exactly. And there's a lot of people like that out there who are trying to get into post-COVID clinic and getting therapy and so on, but they don't have the diagnosis and therefore are left out of the system. Yeah. Um, FT, can I ask how this squares with what you were told by doctors in the early days? You, you, got COVID-19 during the early days of the pandemic, I don't think long COVID was known to be something to be looking out for in the time that you were experiencing it. What were you told then? How does that square with what you're hearing now from physicians? Well, 
it was so early on for me that I remember my doctors were coming into my room saying, well, we just got off the WHO call. <laughs> so, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, day by day, uh, it was changing. There was a day where they were like, no ibuprofen. And then the next day they were like, it's fine. Um, oh my God. It was so early on. Um, and I remember at the very end when I was out of the ICU, but into the newly created COVID ward saying like, you know, I think some something in my chest is weird or, um, I don't think I'm urinating <laughs> in the way that it should be. Um, mm-hmm. And the doctors were saying what they would say for months and really kind of still continue to say, which is we're going to record everything and and we'll test everything if you say something's wrong, which I greatly appreciate because I think a lot of COVID and long COVID patients haven't had people believe them or haven't had access to responsive you know, healthcare, which was huge. So they would say, we'll look at it and we'll test it and we'll monitor it and we'll watch it. And, you know, once I got home, it was, it's always been like, come back in this many weeks and we'll, we'll run more blood work, come back then. Let's do a brain MRI. Let's do an echocardiogram. And I've, you know, there are a million ways that I've talked to you guys about before that I've been lucky in my experience with this virus. And this is an extraordinary amount of luck and privilege to have that medical care, but they can't understandably really tell you anything. I think the only thing that has changed is this understanding that long COVID is real. And as Professor Iwasaki is saying, all these things are long COVID. But most of the time, what they mean or what they are, I still don't know why I had chest pain. Um, A few things were obvious, like having pneumonia. But most of it has been that we don't know why this is happening. We don't know what that is. We believe you. Yeah. And we're going to look at it, but we just have no way to know. And something that has been my great psychological fear, and I'm sure many others have this too, relates to Professor Iwasaki mentioning that there may be a reservoir of virus somewhere still in the body. I think that's you know medically terrifying, but it's also psychologically terrifying because it feels like you're living with this thing. Like, can it reemerge at some time? Just the way that you're not free of it. Um, it's like being possessed or something. Mm. So yes, I I think those are the two areas of, of mystery. Um, what exactly did it do to me? And is it really gone? Yeah. What about treatment? What's the kind of first step of treating long COVID? Yeah, so we are hoping that our new study of studying the immune system, immune response mm-hmm. in the long COVID, will um, highlight you know some of the pathways that we can interfere to uh, make some of these symptoms go away. For mm-hmm. example, if the long COVID is driven by persistent infection, the vaccine may actually get rid of the source of the problem altogether because it will induce very robust antibody response and T-cell response, Mm -hmm. and that would be a permanent cure. But if it is autoimmunity, we need a completely different way of dealing with it to just sort of tamp down the autoreactive Mm -hmm. cells from Mm -hmm. becoming more activated. And that would require completely different kinds of therapy. So really uh, understanding the disease process itself is really important to come up with the right therapy. Yeah. That's the same tension that it sounds like is at the heart of a lot of treatment of acute COVID-19 too. At what point are you trying to tamp down the immune system? And at what point do you just focus on trying to 
minimize the virus because sometimes you need your immune system to eradicate that virus, but sometimes the immune system is causing those those symptoms. Right. So that that is the the running theme of everything we do with COVID. It's all about the timing and um, you know the therapy, for example. Uh, for late stage disease is completely different from therapy against the early infection. And to get that timing right for each patient is it, it has been a real um, struggle. That's something we're really learning on a daily basis. Oh, man. Yeah, so I'm interested in the role of the immune system in long COVID. Hmm. So um, whether we should enhance the immune response to get rid of the reservoir virus or whether we should be tamping it down. And I believe the answer is going to be different for different individual. And so if we can come up with some sort of biomarker to diagnose who has what kind of long COVID and what is the best treatment for that person, uh, that would be my dream come true. Hmm. And and to get there, Uh, we really need to understand the disease itself. So a biomarker meaning like some inflammatory signaling molecule that would tell you, you know, this is not normally uh, so high in most people. And if you have very high levels of this, we might say that is pretty certainly a reaction to SARS-CoV-2. Exactly. And potentially it can be more than one marker that distinguishes whether a long COVID that one has is mediated by persistent virus versus autoimmunity. So, you know, we can even decide on the best course of therapy based on what kind of biomarker a person has. And so a a dream would be to come up with a blood test or something, you know, Mm -hmm. where people can just know what is underlying their disease and to give appropriate therapy depending on that. Yeah. Well, we will keep an eye on your work. It was funny. We said to FT, like, please come back on the show. We're going to speak to Professor Iwasaki. She was like, oh, my God, I love her. <laughs> You're like a celebrity. <laughs> so nice. I know. I'm I'm a little bit starstruck. I've been <laughs> following you on Twitter for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And actually... Um, one of the kind of spooky things that I, I know Jim was haunted by is that I'd been really interested in viruses before this virus um, <laughs> and had been following some of your work. So, yeah, I'm kind of, if you could see me, I'm like a little bit red faced and <laughs> don't know what to say. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I'm glad to meet you here. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you for your work. Uh, we yeah, will keep following you. and appreciate you navigating this really difficult time for so many people and uh, it's really helpful to know that people like you are working hard on mm-hmm. helping make sense of it all thank you so much for having me here thank you take care bye. thank you bye bye ft i'm so sorry for <laughs> yeah we asked all the questions and you're the one experiencing this I'm no sorry. no that was actually better because i really was it was like you introduced like i don't know a 12-year-old girl to a member of One Direction or something. So, do you have any questions? That's next week is when we are doing that. Um. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I hope it was helpful for you. You've really given a lot to, to the show and to the listeners of this show by <laughs> documenting your experience. So I hope that was a bit helpful. No, it, it, it's always so helpful. I'm just very aware that like so many people have had an experience 
so much worse than mine, either with the virus or just because they haven't had like, you know, when Professor Iwasaki was talking about people not getting tested, like I've always been lucky in that way. I got a test, I got a hospital right. bed, I got the follow-up care. And I feel that there are, you know, very truly millions of people out there who have been struggling with every aspect of this by themselves mm-hmm. um, for so long. And that is deeply distressing to me. It feels like the, the resources and access that you came into having this virus with are possibly going to be the way you experience it. You know, it's compounding mm-hmm. unfairness and inequality. If you couldn't get a test, it sounds like you're going to maybe have a more difficult route to getting post-COVID care. And on the scale that Jim was talking about, there are going to be millions of people who, unlike me, have to go somewhere for work, have to use their bodies in that work. But like me, don't feel like they could have done that for a very long time. It just feels like so many levels of ways in which the inequalities that we entered this with are going to get compounded and are being compounded. Yeah. For people who are listeners who may have friends, family who are experiencing symptoms that fall under the umbrella of long COVID, how do you be helpful? when you have some a loved one or friend or family member who has a condition for which doctors are saying we you know there's not much we can do here like is it helpful ft to just like stare at you with kind of haunted eyes and be like what's <laughs> happening today <laughs> how are you um, actually it, although you paint a harrowing picture of that concern i think that concern <laughs> is very helpful Good. to say okay. how are you even what may seem like a long time after the fact i think is important because that recognition that things might not be okay 2 months 6 months a year on from the virus i think allows the person to have the space to not be okay and i think the biggest thing is belief i you know worried a lot that not just doctors, um, but also my family wouldn't believe me. For me to say, you know, I had this in March and it's October and I'm still really tired or my body just feels wrong. And to have people recognize that and say, um, we understand, we, we know that this virus put your body through a lot of trauma and we understand that you're still recovering. And we believe that these things, because a lot of the time you feel like, am I imagining this? Like so many things are happening. I feel so strange. Is Mm -hmm. this real? And other people believing you and believing in you, I think is immensely helpful because Mm -hmm. even if you have the best doctors, you're always going to have to be an advocate for your own care um, and an advocate as a patient and going into that, you know, with with people supporting you, I think is immensely helpful. Do you think that's some of the value of a diagnostic test or biomarker test like what she was describing there? Even if it doesn't, you know, if we don't have a treatment, having that biomarker test that could give this physical evidence around which so much of the American medical system, you know, yeah. relies and insurance and, and everything. Um mm. what role do you think that would play in sort of validating people's fears and concerns and anxieties? I think that's huge because when I think about my own experience and I I think many of the people who um, had serious cases of COVID 
will have had the same. You know, before I had COVID, I was a person who had other um, comorbidities and chronic illnesses. Um, one of those, which I, I'm not sure if it's a comorbidity for COVID, but just a chronic illness that a lot of people have is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I spent about 10 to 15 years of my life trying to get someone who would diagnose me with this. I didn't know that's oh what gosh. I was looking for, but I went from doctor to doctor to endocrinologist and it took ages. And someone saying, you have this thing, this is what it is. And just diagnosing it makes a huge difference. Uh, yeah. It makes a difference to you because you now have a language and a term um, and you have an objective fact isn't it in some ways also the very sad that we that we can't just take people's word for it or that many people can't that it would be so meaningful to have a biomarker that we insist on these physical markers I, I think of things like like migraines or anxiety depression how differently people are treated or regarded if the exact same symptoms are caused by a, a cyst or a tumor in the brain versus if there you know isn't something physical there that can be pointed to on a scan. Yeah. And I think too that um, COVID shines a bright light on everything that we maybe don't want to look at. And uh, mythologies of sickness and personal responsibility, um, which I think are then mm -hmm. often related to race and class. So if you have diseases like diabetes or obesity, both of which can make COVID-19 more severe, the narrative attached to those two conditions is that that's a failure of personal responsibility. That's a moral failing. You should have known better than to get those things, even though we know that that's not how they operate. It's not simple. They uh, bring yeah. in um, huge factors of race and class and uh, inequality and, you know, heritage of trauma, all of these things. Um, and then secondly, I think also the idea that, um, associations of illness or sickness with weakness, um, mm -hmm. just not being strong enough, which I think maybe women tend to experience a lot. Um, and people who, who suffer from uh, mental health conditions experience a lot that there's, if you would just have the personal will, you could get over it. If you just um, ate the right things, you did the right things, you woke up with a smile <laughs> on your face, you would, you'd be better. And I think I can see that COVID-19 and the long haul experience, um, as well as the acute experience is kind of going to bring all of these things into one big tapestry of um, right. ways in which we, we think about illness and we think about personal and even like moral failure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my experience with it, people sometimes have dealt with so much delegitimization that it can actually be a relief sometimes to get a diagnosis, even when that's not a diagnosis that you want. There are lots of different analogies to other medical conditions throughout history and emerging infectious diseases, especially where we people are experiencing symptoms that we, you know, medicine just has not doesn't know what to do with and doesn't know how to classify and doesn't know how to diagnose. And I'm reminded of uh, HIV/AIDS in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience because I I know there are a lot of people out there who are uncomfortable or embarrassed or don't want to share their experience or just, you know, know that their experience has not been as bad as many other people's and therefore maybe feel guilty about that. I, I You'd expressed that sentiment earlier. And I think, you know, this pandemic has brought such a spectrum of suffering and sadness and symptoms, and they all need to be addressed, taken seriously and demand to be. And it's helpful 
for you to share everything you've been through. And I hope hope <laughs> listeners will feel comfortable doing the same with friends and family and expect to be taken seriously. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. And thank you always for, for doing this show because it is my first port of call <laughs> so for many <laughs> things. I'm very grateful for it. Oh. Until well, we Professor just... Misaki gets her own podcast, then we know you're going to totally yeah, turn Yeah, I'll, I'll be out of here. <laughs> See you guys later. <laughs> She's doing one with One Direction. Um, yeah. Well, let's keep in touch. Thanks, guys. Okay, bye. Bye. Okay. Bye. bye. Thanks, bye-bye. Jim, that was so great. I, I feel so lucky I got to uh, talk to her today. Yeah. Yeah. Now this is yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Quite a lot of like the big blind spots for medicine and where we fail people and where people feel left behind is when we don't have that quantifiable, totally. concrete set of criteria for like if your blood pressure is over one forty on X number of visits, then you constitute mm -hmm. hypertension. You know, it, it's just, like much more nebulous. Yeah. Wait, Jim, can I ask you something? During the interview, Please. I heard some light snoring and I'm thinking it wasn't you because you were very much <laughs> present and there for the interview. But was there you hear that right now? Or... You just heard it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that. Yeah, that's Moses. And he <laughs> is, does that in a way that does sometimes embarrass me on calls because I people think that maybe I'm the one snoring, but he yeah. has to be like in physical contact with me at all times because he's a pandemic <laughs> dog and he sleeps a lot. So he's at my feet yeah. snoring. It's like he's heckling you. Honestly, it seems like he's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, tell some good jokes and maybe I'll wake up. <laughs> oh, yawn. But, talking about the pandemic know. again. How about you start talking about sticks? I'll be on an interview uh, asking uh, Dr. Fauci about something and mm -hmm. he's going on and on and then there's just a snoring on the line. <laughs> oh my God. Um, we'll see. Yeah. Maybe I did have one point. Uh, if I can add just like one final layer here, which makes this all the more Please. difficult. For, if people are listening and are having symptoms like this, it's important to speak with a healthcare professional so that they can be tracked, you know, over time. If there is a, mm -hmm. a concerning change that just because you don't, know everything about this condition doesn't mean that there aren't especially concerning things to look out for and things that can be addressed. Things like experiencing chest pain or inability to sleep. There's always a possibility that there are, there's more than one thing going on and you don't want to just chalk it up to long COVID because, you know, there could be, you know, additional issues that, that need to be addressed too. So it's a okay complicated it, yeah. for that reason as well. But I just, I just want to make sure our listeners are aware of that dynamic. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. And I think like FT said too, she's, you know, constantly advocating for her own health. So if something feels wrong, she's not going to just accept it, you know? Um, right, right. Social Distance is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez. We love hearing from listeners. If there's something you'd like us to talk about on an upcoming show, our email is socialdistance at theatlantic.com and our voicemail line is 202-642-6487. And as always, if you like the show and want to access all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. Fabulous. Bye, Maeve. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs>